Hey, this is Thor from Cyberry. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or one of the other series like 401 Access Denied or Go For It with Sarah Moffat, then make sure to like, follow, or subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And we'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice, and you could be featured in a future episode. From all of us at Cyberry, thank you and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberry. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 401 Access Tonight. We've got a really exciting, really interesting topic today to discuss. And I think for many companies out there, it's really going to be something that you're either in the middle of doing or it's something you're going to have to do in the near future. So exciting topic. Um, I'm one of your co-hosts, Joe Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Dichotic and also advisory CISO for Dichotic and many companies around the world. I'm kind of like almost an ear to, to many CISOs uh, kind of you know, thought process. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm Again, I'm joined with Mike, uh, my co-host. Mike, do you want to give us an update and uh, interesting about what the topic is going to be about? Yeah, uh, Mike Rowan, uh, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cyberary. Uh, today's topic is about cybersecurity insurance. Uh, and we're joined by two great guests, uh, Kevin and Michael. I'll let them introduce themselves and uh, maybe one of them will tell you a little bit about uh, their company and what they do. Kevin, why don't you go first? Sure. Thanks, guys. Hi, Kevin McGowan. Uh, I am Vice President of Underwriting with Resilience. I sit in Chicago. So here at Resilience, we are underwriting cyber insurance on a daily basis. And we also have some pretty interesting security offerings that we're bringing to the table. Uh, And with that, I will pass it to my colleague, Michael, to introduce himself. Thanks, Kevin. My name is Michael Phillips, and I'm Resilience's Head of Claims. So I'm an insurance lawyer. So hold your booze. They only make me stronger. Uh, but what I do is I make sure that uh, Kevin's promises are fulfilled when it, when a cyber crisis hits. Um, and I, I try to help uh, companies respond to the incidents that happen and maximize their insurance on the other side. Great. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Absolutely. So it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm really excited about uh, today's conversation. I think it's, it's an important topic for many companies because it's a way, you know, it's one of the several ways to offset risk. Um, which is important for organizations. Um, so can, can I just, get, I'd like to get kind of some of your input. I, I've been kind of touching the insurance industry for quite some time. Around uh, 2008, 2009, I got heavily involved in the maritime sector. And it was a time when in maritime, uh, they were getting, you know, I guess the old type of, you know, real world ransomware uh, type of thing when they were becoming, you know, pirates were attacking vessels. And what was interesting at the time was insurance was a big discussion uh, for the shipping industry. And they had lots of different insurance policies. And, and one of the things was that uh, we started to see, you know, ships being, you know, and ship management companies and, and the industry been targeted by cyber attacks at that point in time. But interestingly enough, the cyber insurance portion actually was under the terrorism portion of the insurance law. And it actually excluded them from getting insurance for cyber side. So I'm just interested from your side, you know, and, and then, of course, in the years after that, we saw a lot of major attacks. And I started seeing the likes of cyber captives being a kind of shortcut because 
there was nothing really to cover that cyber side of things. So just interested to get your kind of feedback into how, how has cyber insurance progressed since those times where one is, you know, companies couldn't get it, wasn't available, and then companies moved to doing cyber captives. What's the current situation today with cyber insurance? What's the offerings and, and how has it progressed over the years? I think Michael, Michael, let's, you, yeah, Michael, you're not in your head. That's a great question. And, um, you know, what is cyber insurance? Even in 2021, we're still having to address that, that question. Uh, you know, if you rewind the clock 30 years or so, the initial cyber-ish mm-hmm. insurance policies were liability policies sold to tech companies. You know, if, if you uh, were breached and you lost data or your technology failed to protect the your client firm, uh, you you may be sued and you may have liability and you might want insurance to transfer some of that risk. Uh, but over the years, we, this policy, this t- this side of the industry has iterated uh, to expand to a lot more coverages. You know, one thing that I think is really important to highlight, and, and your question uh, gives me the opportunity to do so, is what truly is cyber insurance versus other types of insurance that might uh, try to address some aspect of computer-based risk is a really important one. And it's one the industry wrestles with every day. So at Resilience, and I'll tee it up for Kevin to comment on, uh, we are champions of the standalone and affirmative cyber insurance marketplace. So that's the most technical version of, of what I mean to say, which is we develop we develop products that are that are cyber only, that have cyber on the tin, that everything they say is about the perils of computer security and the like. So a lot of the public reporting to this day about cyber insurance tends to reflect uh, these other markets, these traditional markets, and there is no market more traditional to insurance than than marine risk, uh, trying to address uh, computer-based risks for their spaces as compared to where Kevin and I uh, uh, try to develop expertise, which is uh, this standalone space where we are, (laughs) everything we do has to do with this risk. So on on that real quick, I'm curious because there is a, point where physical stuff and cyber overlap and like how do you draw those lines like if there's a data if i have a physical data center and there's a physical breach like how does is that covered by cyber like where do those where are those boundaries and how do you guys sort of think about that well that's great i'm gonna i'm gonna take that one too and and then uh, i'm gonna take all the tough ones because you're asking all the tough ones right away so that that question um also speaks to another thing that the cyber insurance industry or the industry at large is talking about every day. We call it the silent cyber problem. So most of the physical, tangible property risks uh, in the world uh, sit with property policies and with other types of commercial insurance policies that say if if uh, you know physical property is stolen or destroyed, we'll replace it. Uh, and meanwhile, cyber insurance, uh, our sector, we've always focused on intangible risks. And now you are seeing, uh, just as the technology is moving in this direction where uh, internet-connected things are manipulating physical objects or have the ability to do so, uh, mm-hmm. cyber cyber insurers trying to figure out what more can they cover, how do they underwrite to it, uh, while property underwriters are saying, you know what, I'm getting burned. I don't know about this. Uh, you know, I don't know cybersecurity well enough. I don't know about data privacy well enough and the consequences of these events. So I don't want to cover that anymore. And so that's where we're seeing a bit of you know, intersection and divergence. And so uh, different underwriters are taking different strategies on that. That's, that's really interesting because your point, one of the things I'm used to from insurance policy looking at, you know, in the past, it was almost about, you know, 
let's say, you know, they had a leak or a, a fault in the data center, which caused physical damage to the servers. And the insurance policy would have covered them for the cost of the equipment, but the data itself, they were not covered. They, you know, that data itself was basically, you know, not considered a tangible uh, value asset. Um, what's really interesting from you're coming from the opposite side is that looking at from the data perspective and really focusing on right organizations. So really giving that gap of what they couldn't do in the past so they can have the traditional types of policies that would cover them for the physical assets um, to be able to, to, to restore and get back up and running. But for many businesses, they rely on the data. Um, so, you know, what, so, you know, how would this work in, for example, because most what I see from a data tangible perspective that most organizations get faced with is the likes of ransomware. And we had a recent you know, episode discussing about, you know, organizations who do, do become victims of ransomware because that targets the data. That really targets the availability of the data. It, it you know, stops the business from providing services. In many cases, you know, if it impacts their backups, they're in a situation where they they struggle to even recover. Um, so is that kind of your type of customer base you're focusing on, the, purely in the data perspective? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. That kind of ties together some of the topics you guys were just talking about in terms of where are the lines, what is the intent of a standalone cyber insurance product, and sort of the difference between tangible versus intangible property versus data. Mm -hmm. And if you think about how insurance policies work, it all goes back to the triggers. So on a property policy, you're talking about physical events like fires and hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And on a cyber policy, and like what we offer at Resilience, you're talking about what we'll broadly call security breaches, security events, data breaches, privacy events. And so ransomware, as you guys probably know, is what folks like Michael and me and others in the cyber insurance community are talking about every day. And you talk about how the policies have evolved over time. You know, as Michael was describing earlier with that liability concept, cyber insurance came out of professional liability in a way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us, myself included, have a background in both cyber insurance as well as professional liability, particularly for technology companies. And you had that concept of perhaps software failing and that leads to a security event. What does that look like? Over time, cyber insurance policies with the help of the broader market, <clears throat> became much broader in scope in terms of what they cover. Fast forward to today, the most common threat vector, broadly speaking, being ransomware. So you get hit with ransomware and think about all of the different things that can implicate and the different costs associated with it. Mm -hmm. And a well-designed cyber insurance policy is going to address a lot of those. So there's going to be a front-end investigation where someone mm -hmm. like Michael is going to coordinate with you to bring in a law firm, likely a forensics firm, potentially an additional forensics firm that is going to specifically work around ransom negotiation. Mm -hmm. And there's also insurance coverage for the actual payment itself. There's then back-end business interruption loss for, okay, we were down for three days and we lost X mm -hmm. amount of revenue. And then the last item, which we sort of were alluding to earlier, having to do with a data recovery concept. If you had a full corruption of data and you lost certain important data sets, then it needs to be rebuilt in some way, shape, or form. So all of those things right now are, are kind of the, the true spirit of a cyber insurance policy. And that's where insureds right now, I think, are generally glad that they have the policies because they seem to be working quite well, which is then presenting a new set of challenges for the insurance carriers that are providing the coverage as the losses from ransomware have certainly increased over the past couple of years. So, uh, 
I'm curious because um, you mentioned sort of the loss of business and stuff like that. And um, there's, there was so much to unpack in what you were talking about. I think it hits on so many different things. But one, uh, I was listening to um, our friends have a, uh, over at Shift 5 have a podcast and they were talking about a recent incident with a, a trail line, uh, a train uh, line where they got hit with a cyber and it, uh, attack and it basically shut down their their ability to move and use you know use their trains and, and transit and i'm curious like at that point like are you working with the other ins- parts of the insurance like that company assuming they have a cyber insurance policy there was certainly a cyber event but it starts to have all this real physical world impact um is it you guys 100 are on that or are you also working in tandem with the other insurance company on some of the some of the sort of ripple effects of of that of that incident yeah I'll- yeah, I have a quick comment there, and then I think it'd be really helpful to hear Michael jump in from the claims perspective, because that's where folks like him really get involved. And so to your point, depending on the nature of the loss, sometimes there can be overlap and coordination between multiple insurance policies. I think what's interesting about the example you gave and something Michael can touch on because it's a challenge in the market right now is, so we talk about downtime. So that rail line, they, they can't operate. So now you start to get into essentially forensic accounting. And this also ties back to the property insurance market as well in terms of business interruption coverage. So you have, okay, the trigger might've been a cyber attack. So you, you, you look towards cyber insurance and then you start getting into, because of it, we were down and could not operate for X number of days. Well, we typically generate Y amount of revenue over that period of time. So that does bring in some different and older insurance principles that the cyber market is now grappling with. And with that, I'll, I'll let Michael give a little more color around yeah, that. No. Well, I mean, again, these are the hardest questions, uh, <laughs> which I appreciate. So um, the cyber, I, I'll speak broadly for the philosophy of the uh, affirmative cyber market. You know, we sell a product that is typically designed to respond as quote unquote primary um, for a cyber-based event. But as you've just described, events uh, such as your rail line example, you know, they may have policy, other policies that consider themselves to be uh, primary or uh, or substantially responsible for any loss that manifests itself in, in the physical world. And that gets into uh, quite the exercise, you know, to line up the language of the policies, to find out what the policyholder wants, what the insured wants, what did they expect? And how does it all line up to the four corners of these contracts that they've negotiated? Uh, it can be can be complicated. You know, from our point of view at Resilience, we're trying to offer something more than uh, just attention to the data breach element and the intangible risks that we've been discussing uh, to help firms become more operationally resilient, both preventive, preventatively, proactively, and then in in the, in the event that they need to recover. So, you know, certainly we we want to get our shovels out and help help firms get back up and running. Um, and uh, you know, be service oriented. Uh, but but the but when you're a buyer of insurance of, of uh, and you're thinking about your, this peril and how it can manifest in all these different ways, this gets my this gets back to my comment about the sort of standalone and affirmative market. You know, you don't get all of those coverages that Kevin was outlining if you just bolt on a little bit of cyber onto your property policy. You know, you need, you do need to go to a specialty market. You know, of which we are one. You know, to get access to the data recovery coverage, a full, a fulsome cyber extortion coverage. Um, you know, as well as these business interruption coverages. Otherwise, you might just get a little something that says, if you need a privacy lawyer to evaluate your, you know, your data breach notice obligations, you might get coverage for that. But you wouldn't have uh, everything. So, you know, uh, it's important to 
sort of grapple with that with a broker typically uh, to figure out exactly what your perils are that you need that you need uh, insurance for. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's, that, really that's also one of the, sorry, just taking a, like a, let's take a huge step back. Like um, what advice would you have for a company looking for insurance? Like what, like what should I be concerned with as I, as I enter into this? I think cyber is an area that like every company, regardless of what you do, you're now, it's actually a, a real risk. It's, and it's, um, it's very different as well. There's, there's and it's very different by industry. And yeah. And so it's like what advice. Yeah. Different yeah, types of attacks as well. You know, you've got yeah. so many different types. You've got service attacks that stops you from delivering business. You've got you know, the likes of DDoS. You've got ransomware attacks that destroys your data. You've got data breach where your data gets stolen. There's so many different aspects here. And it can be very, you know, depending on the company and business that they're offering, the impact can be very different. Um, so to, to, to Mike's point is, you know, if you're a company, you know, what's what's an assessment look like to really determine what is the right kind of policy to get? And, you know, what's the types of requirements you would have to meet? Uh, you know, is it just filling in a form or do I actually have to implement something? Is there some regulatory type of compliance I had to, to get to in order, you know, to become eligible? Kevin, you want to take one? Yeah, I can jump in there. That that is a good set of questions, uh, and there's there's a lot there. So <clears throat> I guess I'll start with if you're a company out there at this point, regardless of industry, because as we're all hitting on, unlike certain types of specialty insurance, cyber risk, cyber insurance is essentially industry agnostic. Everyone has the exposure in one way, shape, or form, given all the different types of attacks we just touched on. So first and foremost. Typically, a company is going to talk to their broker, ideally, who can have some specialty and expertise in cyber insurance because it is very much a niche product. And particularly compared to certain other lines of commercial insurance, cyber moves really fast and it changes and there's a lack of standardization. So what one carrier says on their policy or what they call a certain type of coverage might vary from them to the next person. And not every policy is going to give all the same coverages. So first and foremost, you're going to be talking to your broker, ideally, working with risk management, information security, finance, HR, legal, all these people that are different stakeholders at the insured, talk to your broker, assess the risk. And then your broker is going to go out to markets like resilience and others and try to procure different quotes. And, and this is where it gets interesting because as you were saying, sort of what's required? What are we going to ask? And that is really interesting because, again, the market is moving fast. Mm -hmm. And as I alluded to earlier, and as Michael can attest, the loss environment has increased quite a bit, to put it simply, particularly around ransomware. And so just a few years ago, you might have been able to get a fairly robust product from a cyber insurance carrier by simply filling out a, a few page application and answering some relatively basic secu security questions. Initially, any underwriter is gonna wanna know, what do you do? What is your business? What industry are you in? And how big are you from a revenue standpoint? And then you sort of go downstream into, have you had any claims or cyber incidents before? And what I will say now most importantly is, what security controls and risk management do you have in place? Fast forward to today's world, now where for a long time, carriers were adding more and more coverages to policies, which brokers and insurers were helping push. Now things are actually starting to almost go the other way. Certain of our competitors that have taken a lot of losses, they're now pulling back. 
They're adding coinsurance. They're adding supplements and reducing the amount of coverage they're giving, particularly around ransomware. So you really do need to have your ducks in a row. And so at Resilience, what we're doing is we have experienced underwriters like myself who know the questions to ask around phishing cadence and patching protocols and endpoint detection and response tools and offline backups. We could go on and on. But when we're working with Michael from a claims leadership standpoint and security experts that we have in-house because the insurance industry is kind of realizing this is a, a big ticket item. It's a big problem. And it seems like insurance professionals like myself and security professionals maybe can't solve it just by themselves. So you need to bring the two together, which is what we're attempting to do with resilience. And that's where that much more robust assessment is coming in right now. And so we're looking at all kinds of different controls across the environment to see what insureds are doing, because that's going to dictate the outcome that they're going to get, how, how viable the coverage is, what it costs. And so that's what insurers and potential insureds need to be thinking about is really being able to tell a good story about how they're managing the risk. And that's going to produce a better outcome on the insurance side. Awesome. Are you guys no. able to do any like, like, cause I talked to another company a long time ago, uh, actually not even a company it was just um, some mathematicians that were like trying to build analytic <laughs> models uh, to try and assess risk and, and so on and so forth. And they had some interesting findings. Um, and I'm curious, like, like questionnaires, like I fill out questionnaires all the time when I'm selling, like, you know, we have prospects that want us to make sure that they're, you know, we're doing this, 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 this. And a lot of times those questionnaires, I promise there's a question coming. A lot of times those questionnaires have like antiquated, like check boxes I have to check. And I know if I don't check this box, it's going to get denied. But at the same time, I'm actually going well beyond what this questionnaire is asking me to do. I can think of any number of like sort of regulatory things that just can't keep pace mm -hmm. with the ever-changing environment of technology and security and so on and so forth. So with that in mind, like how do you sort of capture, because I would imagine like if you talk, if you just talk to the security team, if you just talk to the company and found out like, how, like what's their mentality towards security, you'd be like, oh, these guys know their shit mm -hmm. and we're just going to like, we feel pretty good about it, but there's no way that that can come across in a, I feel like there's no way to get that in a questionnaire. I'm curious, like how you, yeah. but there's probably some models. There's probably some things you can do that sort of tease that out of how a company operates. I'm just curious how you guys are sort of approaching it. I guess my first question is, were you an underwriter before? Because like <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Um, you know, I, I come from a world um, where I have historically managed books of business of large accounts, large companies, Fortune 1000 buying cyber. And to your exact point, all of us in the insurance world, we still get applications and questionnaires, a lot of which are yes, no every day. And that is part of the picture. But to your point, it is hard to tell a story and to glean any information that sort of falls into a gray area. Or can you elaborate on that just from a, a yes, no application? So you're spot on. Historically, I mentioned the larger accounts because those companies were more likely to have pre-COVID in-person underwriting meetings or, or over the past year or so, Zoom meetings, where folks like me were asking them lots of questions. They were giving presentations and you could get a bit more of a qualitative feel. So in addition to a bunch of yes, no answers, you could get that sense exactly like you described of, you know, this organization is impressive. They're really committed to security and risk management. Or, or perhaps they're not, and they're viewing this just as a financial instrument and some risk transfer, which is less of what you're looking for in the cyber insurance world. So that absolutely is a big part of it. 
as the scrutiny in underwriting has increased, given the threat vectors over the past couple of years, that has come more downstream where middle market organizations now are needing to do those calls and meetings and present a broader picture beyond what's on paper, because that does help everyone. It does help me as an underwriter, but it also helps the insured, again, tell their story, give more context around what they're doing, um, and, and ideally get a more optimized result. So that is certainly a big part of it. And then the other item you mentioned just about actuary and, and modeling the data, it's really interesting too, because again, compared to especially something like property insurance, which has been around for hundreds of years, cyber insurance, it's debatable, but it's really only been around in earnest for 10 to 15 years, realistically. And so with that, from an actuarial data standpoint, yes, we have some, but that is not a great amount. Uh, compared 15 to other years insurance. of data compared to hundreds of years worth of yeah, data? Yeah, that hurts. <laughs> and, and so with that, you know, again, if you think about resilience and what we're doing, what's a little more interesting, not being a traditional large insurance company is, you know, we have a whole data science team in-house. So you're trying to do bring all this together. We have a security team that can gather tons of data externally. You have underwriters who are getting data from applications and meetings. And you have a data science team and you're trying to leverage all that as best as possible. And you're trying to look at different items and track it and correlate it back to loss trends. Do you have an open RDP port? Does that make you more likely to have a ransomware event? More than likely, yes. <laughs> Things like that. So, so we're trying our best with lots and lots of different data sources to paint a clearer picture, correlate that to actuarial data, and drive better results. Which I, I imagine really, helps with scalability. Yeah. Right. I mean, like if every company needs to get cyber insurance, mm. not every company can have a face to face or Zoom, like virtual meeting with their right. with, to go through that whole process. Right. So, that's right. so yeah. So, so on that point, I, I think that's really interesting because it gets really from a data analytics perspective, you'll have those companies who have met certain requirements and, you know, security controls that don't become victims. And you've got the other set who do become victims. Potentially, you could get to the point where you could actually use the data of those who are actually better protected in order to actually give suggestions to those who become victims of how to do it better. That's quite an interesting kind of aspect where you actually start looking at, you know, since you're you know, covering all of the models um, and doing those data analytics, it'd be quite interesting to offer recommendations for those to prevent themselves from becoming a victim. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that, you know, trending and predictability model uh, will actually start uh, picking up. So it's a really interesting aspect. I think yeah, one of the challenges, are, that, I'm sorry, sorry. I, I was just going to say, I think one of the challenges you guys probably face is that on the reporting side, there's probably only a small percentage of events that actually get reported in a way that you guys can actually use in an analytic mm -hmm. model. My guess is there's a lot of events that happen where just, you pay the guys off under the table, you do whatever you're going to do. And it's not really out there. I don't even, if I remember correctly on the cyber side, there's, there's only a handful of places where you actually have to report. I think state of Maryland has like, is one of the places, but there's like, it's very hard to get that reporting information. I imagine. Yeah. I think it depends on the impact really. If you're a victim of ransomware, it's going to be noisy. If you're basically stole, data stolen, you might be trying to do it under the covers because uh, right. it's not the visibility there. So it's interesting. Yeah. So uh, Joe's reading our VC mm -hmm. deck, you know, with respect <laughs> to uh, being able to take what we learn and use it to make uh, superior recommendations. That's certainly true. I mean, at, at Resilience, and, and we're not, um, it's our thesis that you can't just look backward because technology is always changing. Yeah. 
the cyber criminals are, are always changing their strategies and also the law is changing. So, you know, each state does have a data breach notice law, but it's very specific to mm-hmm. social security numbers, driver's license numbers, per- personally identifiable information. If you want to get in and, and what you have to report, whether to the attorney general or to the impacted individuals, doesn't go into a cause of laws and uh, cause of loss analysis. You know, what was the intrusion uh, pathway? You know, what security mm-hmm. did you have that fa- that didn't work? Or you know, what imp- which employee clicked the link they shouldn't have clicked? So that, was, um, that was my next you know, question. I, <laughs> no, you're, so, so it's it's hard for us, and in our claims investigation, we want we want to be uh, comprehensive, but also user friendly, right? We, we, we policyholders want to know that they're getting um, a recovery out of their insurance and and not necessarily an audit out of it. So, you know, for me, one of my challenges in my role, and again, no one needs to weep for the insurance lawyer, but is to get enough information to uh, help educate my underwriters. So that way they are uh, selecting risks appropriately, pricing them appropriately, and and we're managing those risks uh, appropriately before anything bad happens. Uh, As an industry, are you guys collaborating? Like, you all have the same problem. Are you guys trying to work together to create like some sort of one-stop, like uh, collaborating in any way to sort of share this information in, in useful ways, not in blamey kind of ways? <laughs> I'll take that one first and then I'll kick it to Kevin. So, you know, Lo- the history of Lloyd's of London is, is, is a coffee shop. It's a gossip, you know, it's a gossip filled uh, atrium in, 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 uh, in central London. Um, but at the same time, we're all competitors. So, and, and claims data, is the data that we've invested the most money in because it's not just uh, the investments on the underwriting and analytical side, but then it's the money out the door uh, and our losses. And so um, sharing data in the insurance market has, has always been uh, both quite common and also fraught with, with uh, competitive peril. Uh, we also work with insurers and reinsurers who, of course, each of them aggregates data that they receive from other uh, insurance players that they may insure or reinsure or support in some other way, uh, as do the brokers. So um, we all have great data sets, or we all think we have one. We we just think ours is a little better than the next. Um, At Resilience, we are quite uh, supportive of efforts to increase data sharing, uh, especially around ransomware, which, as Joe was describing, you know, too often exists in a shroud of mystery, isn't reported to law enforcement, or uh, or or has a stigma around it such that firms just want to sweep it under the rug and not not discuss it. Uh, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna bend the curve on that trend line, we need more information. So that's my take on it, Kevin. No, I, I would just echo a lot of what you said. I don't have a whole lot else new to add there. I think there are a lot of conversations happening at very high levels. I mean, you even start to think about government implications, especially around ransomware, in terms of yes, can there be more information sharing to solve the problem? And then you juxtapose that against the fact that it is a for-profit industry in a very competitive environment. And carriers that have big data sets and lots of claims information, they're trying to leverage that themselves to produce better results for them as a company. So it is an interesting situation because as Michael alluded to, there are dozens of different carriers that have data sets. There are Mm -hmm. brokers that have their own data sets based on who their clients are. And then what's really interesting, particularly ransomware, is now, some of the forensics vendors and some of the vendors that are doing ransomware negotiation, they've got their own interesting data sets because they're getting pulled into lots of different ransomware incidents, regardless of who the insurance carrier might be, if there is one, or who the insurance broker is, or what industry they're in. So there's lots of different competing data that, that we're all sort of trying to leverage. And the last thing I'd mention, going back a bit to the prior topic and tying it together is, you know... Joe, to your point, it does speak to 
cyber insurance in particular being different than some other lines, whereby we're trying to understand, okay, here's an assessment of your risk. And here's maybe a couple of key controls that you don't have in place. So there are lines there where we at Resilience, we might say, right now, you're not in the right position for us to insure you if you're really mm-hmm. lacking a lot of maturity. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a middle ground, which is different than other lines where we're trying to really partner together and bring a lot of resources and value to the table in addition to financial risk transfer and say, we really recommend you implement X, Y, and Z from a controls perspective. And you're even now starting to see in the market, there are different levers you can pull. Because again, we all know broadly speaking, depending on your risk profile, it's going to affect the limit and the price that you get. But there's even more specific targeted tweaks like if you implement multi-factor authentication for admin accounts, perhaps this sublimit for a ransomware loss will go away. So you're seeing more mm-hmm. things like that. We're particularly at resilience with the different teams we have in-house. We're trying to drive behavioral mm-hmm. change. Yeah. It's training. So, so I, have, yeah, I'm, I'm I was going to say, yeah. I have a question. Just if this is probably more uh, for, for Michael. Um, what it gets into, so when you get into the claims process, one of the things I'm really interested in, and this goes back to the experience I have in the maritime side, one of the things that they always wanted to do was uh, find human fault. Because if they find a human at fault, then their processes and their liability favors the company um, versus if they find like it was, let's say, a maintenance issue that they didn't you know, check the engine and you know, that was an issue, then that becomes changes the liability. So one of the things I've started seeing when we hear about data breaches and security incidents in the cyberspace, I've started seeing the same trend. I've started seeing looking for human fault because if you find a human fault, that it means that your your compliance or your policies or your procedures are not, you know, they weren't the cause of it. It was a human who clicked in a link. It was a human who abused their access. So are we seeing the same kind of trend in cyber when it comes down to, and does that change the liability, whether it was a failure in the IT not deploying multi-factor authentication or a human clicking in a link? Is there a difference between liability uh, when you get into the claim side? Sure. Well, that's a, that's a great that's a great question, and I think it's too early to tell. Um, most data breach litigation uh, resolves at a settlement, and it resolves at a settlement fairly early on in the pace of litigation. So, uh, typically, there's a dispute as to standing, uh, Article Three standing. It's are you even really harmed? Okay, yes, there was a data breach, but you know, and your social security number may be out, but but have you been have you been the victim of any identity theft? Um, is it just a fear that one day something might bad happen might happen to you? How certain are you even that any of your personal data was truly lost? So that's the that's sort of the the first question of most data breach litigation, especially of course on the personal uh, ident- personally identifiable information mm-hmm. side. A lot of cases can be resolved right there. A judge in, in many circuits, the judge uh, comes to the decision that well, no, you don't have a concrete harm under the under the Article Three, so this case is over. Um, if the judge doesn't make that ruling, right, then the case is, of course, going to continue to, to more fact-based uh, inquiries and discovery around whether what the harm looks like, who's been harmed, how much have they been harmed, um, what was the cause and where was the negligence or the, uh, you know, the breach of contractual duty. And there, I think that your hypothesis makes a lot of sense. It, you know, if you're a business and you're being sued for uh, being, the victim, being the victim of a data breach or some other security event, you might like to say, look, we had all the people, processes, and technology in place, but still Jimmy in the mailroom can't be stopped. You know, he's going to click, 
he can't stop clicking that link. He's going to do it every time. And what do you want me to do? Fire Jimmy? You know, I can't do that. So I think that that's that uh, that hypothesis does make some sense. And I'm sure that there are some litigators who would say, you know, we're going to position this as a, as a human error, you know, an unfortunate. And it is oftentimes truly. Um, but I, I don't think I could say with with uh, with confidence yet that, you know, the cases are are really turning as a valuation perspective on that. On okay. that. And one more la- one final thing, which is. I, I get this a lot from the claims investigation side, which is the coverage mm-hmm. question. You know, am I going to pay this claim on the other end of uh, on the other side yeah. of it? Uh, am I looking to find out that the IT uh, leader, you know, d- didn't configure something properly, or uh, or they didn't deploy technology that might have come up during the underwriting process? And that's not how cyber claims work. You know, the, the coverage mm-hmm. is not designed to say only a you know sophisticated cyber criminal, da- you know, <laughs> led data breach deploying technologies that heretofore were for the National Security Agency. That's the only scenario we're going to cover. You know, no, the triggers are, are usually quite broader than that, you know, and, and encompass all forms of human error, you know, whether it's IT mm-hmm. legal uh, or, you know, a misplaced briefcase used to be the most popular cyber yes. claim. Uh, laptop in a taxi at the airport. Exactly, that's right. So I think, uh, Michael, these are your question from the, the awareness side, you know, from a people perspective, how do you, quanti- I guess, quantify that side? Yeah, I mean, I guess right, getting into sort of training and yeah. things like that, right? Get back to Jimmy in the mailroom, right? If you're if you don't have some sort of security awareness training, doesn't that put you at greater risk potentially? I don't know. I I go back and forth on how effective security awareness training is uh, because you can't be vigilant all the time, but certainly doing some things. I think it's more about training for reporting than it is training for not clicking the link. Um, what do you do if you do do this thing? Not punish people. Don't fire Jimmy because he keeps yeah. clicking the link. Make sure that if he clicks the link, he tells nothing somebody. Happens. I, I <laughs> nothing <link>. happens. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or even better, be well, put systems in place to prevent like where he just sees a web page that says you clicked a really questionable <laughs> link. Do you want to continue? Um, those types of things. So yeah, I'm just curious, like where does training fit in? Does that, is that one of those recommendations that you would make? What other sort of recommendations, you know, without getting into too much detail, like, would you say, what other, you know, sort of advice would you have for companies to sort of reduce their risk when um, that you guys are looking at? Sure. I mean, I, I can chime in from, from the underwriting side. I mean, you're absolutely right. And especially thinking about the lens of ransomware and kind of the, the chain of, of how it happens and the kill chain and correlating that against controls, that first line of defense and often, unfortunately, the weakest link is the human error concept, which isn't just about, oh, I have this security tool, so I'm not worried about it. It doesn't work that way. So yes, as underwriters, myself, others at Resilience and others at other carriers are certainly asking about security awareness training. And that kind of goes back to that qualitative conversation earlier of what's your culture around, in this case, security awareness or more broadly risk management. And we certainly ask questions around phishing testing in particular, because we're trying to tie it back to threat vectors, right? So we know we're seeing lots of losses because Jimmy in the mailroom clicked the link for the seventh time. So we're asking, how often are you doing phishing testing? Ideally, more often. And then, are you tracking click rates? You know, what does that look like? Are they going down? Because yeah, do you have follow up training as you alluded to? If you do click it, and really trying to get through to people. So that is kind of the big area around security awareness training. Again, specifically the phishing testing, and trying to just reduce the likelihood of that occurring. And then from there, you do sort of start to transition back to the technical security side. Mm -hmm. Then you start to think about, well, 
I can do so much, but what if someone like Jimmy still does click? So then you get into items like web content filtering and you start to think about, well, do you have multi-factor authentication in place for access to email or your Office 365 environment? Or do people have admin credentials on their workstations? And trying to limit the damage that can be done After if someone does yeah. click on the link. Right. Yep. I, I sort of feel yeah. remiss if I didn't at least like, so Cyberry, right? We're a cybersecurity career development platform. We have a lot of training that's really geared toward, it's not security awareness training. It's geared towards the cybersecurity professional, trying to keep them up to date. Mm-hmm. Are those the types of programs you also are looking for within? And I'm not fishing. I'm just, I'm just curious if that's the, you know, um, if that's something else that sort of plays a role when you're talking to these organizations about like their their general culture towards security, having these sort of programs and 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 and, inve- and making those types of investments in their security team. Yeah, I'll take that one. And and uh, the answer is yes. And so for for traditional cyber insurers, and I'll differentiate us from traditional, um, we have done a poor job of of pushing that kind of education uh, mm-hmm. and, and of assessing the in-house security apparatus, if you will, you know, um, despite some efforts, you know, to promote, hey, this, this, this is a great resource. This is a great program. This is a great platform for you to develop and continue to mature your organization. Uh, you know, traditional, traditionally, there are a couple touch points where we can, we can influence the insurer, uh, the insured client to improve themselves. One is in the underwriting process when Kevin is talking to them and asking all these questions and saying, hey, have you thought about uh, Cyberary? Have you thought about this tool? Have you thought about this training? And and for us at Resilience, we're trying to really invest also after that transaction has to happen. And that's another time when we sit down and we say, hey, we've assessed uh, we've assessed you in all these different ways with our scans, our technology, our data modeling, and also uh, through assessment of your security team. And, and we want to put, put in front of you them tools and, and uh, educational materials that help them become better. But historically, cyber insurers have had a real tough time with that um, because we're always talking to the insurance people at an organization. So we're really interested in breaking down those silos. So that way the CFO is buying a cyber insurance policy that is empowering the security team at the organization and not one that the security team doesn't know how it works. And then then when the crisis happens, there's this, uh, you know, there's this moment of friction. We want that to be uh, ironed out. So that's actually thing. interesting. Yeah. So if I could, so one of the things that I struggle with, right, as head of security here at Cyber, right, is trying to make some business cases for some of the things mm-hmm. that we want to do, right? We're deploying DLP. Now, how do I, like, it's hard for me in my seat to, to actually quantify what value I can put on, on something like data loss prevention. Like, I can try and do my best, but I just don't have access to all of the data or all of the information. Would, like, I be, like, would the opportunity for me to talk to some you know, like you guys or our broker or somebody to help me to get our company to understand, okay, business if we case. do this, right, to help me build that business case with our CFO. It's not that our business is like against it. It's just that you have to be able to quantify that risk and you have to be able to quantify it in a way that you uh, then know how much to invest in it. Um, is this the type investment. of, yeah, is that like a partnership that you guys can see between the security team and the, and the, and the insurer? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, that's, that's we have that problem too. Insurance has that problem too because if you don't have a claim that year, then you say, "What was my return on investment?" You know, yes. if this, uh, you know. But of <laughs> right. course, you know, and so we we we're always coming to bat to say, "Look, this is what could happen." And so for us at Resilience, when we partner with with a client or a broker, we're trying to lay out as best we can from our data sets and our claims experience 
this is what it really could look like. So we try to present uh, a series of peer events. You know, they didn't have DLP on this one. And really, dollar for dollar, this is exactly what happened. And this is a near a near competitor, a near, you know, a, a similar sector, similar peer. Uh, so that way you can steer that conversation and, and be empowered to make the best case for that uh, investment. It reminds, reminds me. Me of, it actually reminds me of a case because uh, I did the pen test in a PAR station five years ago now. And it was always a one experience that kind of changed my perspective on my job and actually what I'm doing. And it was really, it got down to, it was a CFO and CEO who really turned around and they, they changed the whole perspective. Because when we were doing security, it was all about fear and, you know, risk and, and you know, putting it into, if you don't do this, this is the bad things that could potentially happen. And that was not something that they really could quantify. And it was the CFO, interesting CFO said, what is our, what is our cyber gap? What is the cost of our business not operating per day or per hour? And if we don't do this, what, what is the risk? What's the gap? You know, what do we, you know, what's the cost of that? And it was interesting because this is really where I'm curious for, for both Michael and Kevin is that who you speak into in the board the most often, who's the people that you're actually interacting with? Is it the CISO or head of security? Uh, because the ones that I find was it was the CFO and the risk officer. It was their safety officer. It was all about really they were the ones that made the decision. And the, you know, when they looked at insurance, they said they're willing to spend around 10% of that potential cost, maybe depending if it was like, you know, a million or two million, but it was even up to a hundred million that they were even, you know, exposed of a financial risk of a hundred million, they would even be interested in increasing that even 20% to offset the risk. So I'm just curious, kind of where your perspective, you know, who are you speaking to in the organizations and, you know, how are you actually doing that? Because it's all about risk. And it's about the cost of doing nothing and the cost of doing something and how much you're willing to spend to make sure that that cost of doing nothing doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll speak to it from the underwriting side. And it's a great question. And it's actually something I feel really positive about because over the last few years, it's been one of the best changes I've seen in cyber insurance. Because if you go back five, six years even, Cyber insurance, it was still a little bit newer and younger even then. The take-up rate was lower. And to your point, back then it was still an insurance policy. And so it fell under the purview of risk management, mm -hmm. finance. So it was CFOs, treasurers, risk managers. And then folks like me might ask them some security questions. They might go try and find someone internally who they thought knew the answer. Um, and at the end of the day, there was a disconnect there because you weren't always speaking the same language. And one of the really interesting challenges as cyber insurance was, was newer and maybe the loss environment wasn't as severe, there were certain IT and IS professionals who would sort of get a little defensive and not like the idea of mm -hmm. cyber insurance because they were saying, well, look, we have this great security operation. We have really good controls. We have the best firewalls, et cetera. And over time, I think the broader insurance community with the help of insureds was able to break down some of those barriers and hesitations. And now, as I said, you know, I've been on underwriting meetings and calls weekly for a few years now with lots of different organizations of, of different sizes and industries. And very often we are now talking to the CISOs, which is great because like you guys, they have that expertise even more than someone like me does. And they can answer the questions and they're buying into it from a risk management perspective. So the philosophy of managing risk and then how that correlates to insurance is there. So certainly the CFOs and the risk managers, legal departments, they're all still involved because they should be with insurance. But 
it's been a really great and positive and productive transition where CISOs in particular have gotten much more involved. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it goes back to data. We're getting better data because if before, if you ask a risk manager to fill out a questionnaire about cybersecurity, that's sort of a tough ask. Yes. And then tying it back to underwriting and results, perhaps you're now relying on answers that aren't even correct. Um, so that's mm -hmm. been a, a big improvement, I would say. Yeah, I imagine like that partnership. I mean, I look at it, it's a it's a very positive thing. I, you know, I, I look at it as I have a budget. I have to spend it in the right places. I need to assess my risk. And knowing where I need to invest is is important. And knowing where cyber insurance covers and what it doesn't cover and how I can reduce that cost of the cyber insurance or doing whatever, like it it all ties together and lets me know like, yes, this investment in DLP is the right investment as opposed to maybe investing in some other security apparatus or whatever process or, or technology that may be, you know, oh, I'd love to do that, but there's only so much that I can do. I have a small team, I have a small budget. And so I think looking at it from that perspective of, of how does insurance augment my ability to spread my technology and my resources, you mm -hmm. know, to be most effective, I think is the, is the best way to look at it. And I'm glad that that's sort of the shift that's happening. Yeah. That's positive. Yep. And, uh, you know, Nothing brings friends together like a crisis, and you know, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the losses are are more severe. So, right. you know, where once cybersecurity professionals and cyber insurance professionals might say, you know, what is this, or this is get, these guys are getting in my way, or they're intervening in my plan and program. Now we're all incentivized to really address what is a much more comprehensive problem than it was five, ten years ago, where you know Kevin was really just focused on. You know, is are your payment cards secure? You know, the target breach is right here. You know, I need to know those payment cards are secure. But now, it's operational. It is, um, it's privacy. It's data protection. It's, it's, and it's the the health of the enterprise. So it's, uh, you know, we all have an incentive to get this right. So, so question on that: How 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 early in the process that you know, let's say a company does you know become a victim of a security incident? How early in the process do they get you involved? Because you know, from my experience is that, you know, it's it's a it's a complete organization response. It's, it's you've got the legal response, you've got instant responders, you've got third party, you know, assistance coming in, you've got digital forensics, you might have a PR communications handling, you know, kind of outbound media requests and journalists, you might have press statements ready. Um, you might be basically working with law enforcement uh, from, you know, those perspectives. Where, where do you fit in the kind of instant response kind of area? And do you help coordinate any of that at all, or is it something you just mostly focus around the actually the the claim itself? Um, so how how much involved are you in that incident response piece? Sure. So for us, and from I, I, what I'd say is uh, probably most leading markets, uh, we we want to meet our clients where they are, but we are we're ready to help quarterback from the outset. So at resilience, we maintain an in-house response uh, emergency hotline and a network of partners. You know, I will say generally for cybersecurity professionals who may be listening. Um, a lot of cyber insurance policies are prescriptive about the service providers that are used, whether that's the law firm, the technical forensic firm, the communications firm, et cetera. So my recommendation always is to notice your insurance relationships as soon as possible, even if you believe you've got it under control, even if you um, understand your policy to be more flexible, because you always want to preserve the maximum amount of rights. You know, that's the insurance and in insurance lawyer in me. Um, but for us, it's it's extraordinarily important to be empowering the incident response from the get-go, uh, be able to offer sort of the, the benefit of our ex expertise. You know, I've worked on thousands of events, uh, obviously not with the cybersecurity expertise that a, a lot of my uh, clients will have in-house, 
but as a sort of cross section of, of that expertise with with the lawyers as well. So being able to sort of flag some uh, tripwires because the quicker the quicker you respond, the cheaper. <laughs> the less financial <laughs> impact it has on you, um, and and time in response to this is so critical. So I've got another question related. So this is something I've I've really changed a few years ago. I did an is response, and, and are you are you starting to see even fraudulent claims at all in in this in cyber area as well? Because no. I I dealt with it was an interesting case a few years ago. I, I on occasion uh, I'm a certain expertise and I get called uh, by certain governments and they say, well, I work in these forensics cases. And it was a particular case, and this one kind of led me to Ukraine, and uh, it was a height of ransomware cases. And doing the digital forensics, um, when we're looking at basically the case itself, it didn't follow the normal kind of steps and you know uh, evidence gathering that you would typically find in all the other cases that I dealt with. So we decided to look into a bit more detail, and we started kind of uncovering things that just didn't feel that this was a typical case. Ultimately, it led to that the company themselves actually infected themselves with ransomware, and they were hiding a financial crime. Um, and if they were able to get through the claims process, they were going to get money from the government as a victim of a ransomware case. So it was a kind of interesting case and really changed my outset is that, you know, that nothing is always as it seems. Um, and it really changed my kind of perspective on ransomware cases. So are you starting to see cases like that where people you know, might want to cover other crimes and ransomware is the best thing. It destroys all evidence. It destroys everything. It's, it's a very destructive piece of software. Um, and it gives you know, companies an opportunity to hide other types of crimes uh, under the under the kind of realm of ransomware. Are you starting to see any types of those cases, or is that something that's well, yet Joe, to be- uh- Joseph, don't inspire anybody. To- <laughs> I'm not. It's, Joe just picked real. up on my. That's my exit strategy. Yeah. Uh, thanks for spoiling it. <laughs> Boom! I'm out of here. I'm on an island in Cayman Islands. Um, uh, so, as a general matter, cyber insurance has had a very low rate of of, of fraud. Mm. And one mm-hmm. reason, insurance fraud, although we're always vigilant, especially claimed mm-hmm. lawyers like me, you know, we can suss that stuff out. But um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and part of that is by using these third-party vendors who are very experienced. Mm-hmm. You know, CrowdStrike is going to find it, and they're going to yes. tell us. You know, they're not they're not um, they're not beholden to uh, the insured who's doing it all in-house and saying independence right, exclusively. Yeah. Hey, look, here's the only evidence I've got, and and it points <laughs> way away from where the true you know that where the fraud lies. Um, I have seen a couple of instance instances either in the ransomware context yeah. or in uh, social engineering where they mm-hmm. were essentially you know. Oh, I got fished. I wired, you know, a million dollars out to this, uh, you know, the bank account. <laughs> sure enough, it was their own bank account. Um, that has happened on, an, on a rare occasion. Um, and always, uh, you know, we, we've caught them all. But um, yeah. as a general matter, we're, we're fortunate to have insureds who, uh, who don't pursue that route. That's good. It's, it's, it's something that, I mean, it was, you know, I've seen it in certain places being on the increase, um, but it's not so common. It's just something kind of, I think, you know, it, as we see this being a factor of increase that, we just had to be, you know, having the right tools and, and right people that had that independence in place, that have ability to do the digital forensics without, you know, uh, influence of whoever they're doing it for. So, yeah. 
I think that's probably a great place to sort of wrap things up. I know, uh, Joe, you have a hard stop and uh, I appreciate our guests coming on. Uh, Maybe we can have you come back and and talk some more because I think this is a topic that I've got one one bursting question. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is kind of the, I'm really interested in the future side of things. I'm interested in what next, and I guess we can get into, we definitely, we we should do this as another episode as well and and, and get into a a lot of the kind of the the direction. But even one thing as I've talked in the past about, the PL approach of cyber insurance, where it's the collective, the economy is sharing. And I'm just interested that's something you're going down the path or seeing. It's where multiple companies come together and it's no longer just a, an offset of risk. It actually becomes an investment. It's something that basically multiple companies will invest into. And if you don't have a claims in a year or two, whatever it might be, you'll get reward payback from um, that. PL kind of a type of insurance pool. Is this a kind of something that, you know, I've seen it in other types of industries where you get there's no claims and it's an investment, you get a profit back as a result of, you know, the money that's going in there. And you'll have enough pool as well in that collective, uh, in, you know, investment to the companies that do become victims that there's enough to actually offset that risk. Is that something we're seeing kind of moving towards the economy of sharing of insurance, I guess? Kevin, do you want to take it or you want me to take a swing at it? You can take a swing at it. <laughs> All right. Well, so uh, I don't think I've seen much uh, uh, move towards mutualization on cyber mm-hmm. insurance risk. Uh, that said, at Resilience, we we have a security credit program where we we basically do similar to what you described. You know, if they don't have a claim, we and they want to steer uh, sort of that savings into a, an additional cybersecurity investment. You know, we want to support it too. So we put some mm-hmm. of our you know our our uh, our our uh, what do you say? Put our skin dollars. in the game. Put our skin <laughs> in the game too. <laughs> right. Anyway, Incentivization for the good behavior. Incentiv- right? Yeah, You're correct. That's that's the idea. Is that you know, for doing the right things, you actually get incentivized for doing it. Um, right. It's it becomes actually you know it, it it becomes an easier business case and justification. Just like what Mike was saying is that you know here's the money back at the end of the year to actually invest in new security solutions that will actually help you um, offset the risk and get a, a better insurance policy. Um, so, I think it would be great to wrap it up and uh, love to have you guys come back and, and talk some absolutely. more. Absolutely. This has been interesting. For me, it's really educated because it's something I've been involved in since since 2008 when you know, the whole maritime and, and shipping thing. And it's been really interesting to see how the progress because I've, I've been involved in numerous conversations over the year and it's great listening to that. You know, we've moved along. Um, and I think the audience are, you know, if they're interested in getting an idea, I guess, you know, reach out to your website and, and, and check in resilience to see, you know, what cyber insurance possibly they have so uh, but and basically you know it's been a pleasure having you on the show um you know for the audience you know stay safe make sure you offset the risk you know <laughs> make sure that whatever you do that you do the right things you do the basic hygiene you offset your risk and if you do become a victim that you can recover you have the ability you have people out there who you can connect with and get back to operational business as quick as possible because that's ultimately the quicker you the more resilient you are the quicker you can get back to operations the less financial impact you have to your organization that's ultimately our goal is to make sure your businesses stay safe out there so it's a pleasure having the guests on the show Kevin, Michael, awesome. Uh, Mike G, always, it's great having the, the chat with you and uh, really looking forward to more. And for the audience, tune in to 401 Access tonight every two weeks. And uh, if you listen to this episode and you haven't listened to previous ones, definitely go back and, and subscribe and listen to the episodes every two weeks. We'll have new conversations, new guests, and stay safe. And we look forward to speaking to you and uh, you listen to the episode again. So thank you. All the best. Take care. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it/business.
This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.